Well, before we begin this morning, I just want to uh, make a, a quick plug for our flocks, our home fellowship groups. These are really the means by which we break down our big church here. They are opportunities for us to get together in smaller groups, to care for one another, to fellowship with one another. It's really another opportunity for us to really teach and train you through the scriptures. And it really helps for me to shepherd you as a pastor. I know I've enjoyed the times in the smaller settings with the different families that are there. And I would encourage you to come and to be involved with them. They meet every other week. You know, it's every other week. Sometimes some are on Friday nights, some are on Sunday nights, and uh, the purpose um, isn't to segment the church on Sunday morning into smaller groups. In fact, I've told everybody at the flocks. I said, if you're involved in a flock, don't talk with those people on Sunday morning, because you know you're going to see them throughout the week, and then maybe when people disperse, you can talk to them. But it really frees you up then on Sunday mornings to reach out to people maybe that you don't know very well. It's a great time, and if you aren't coming. I merely ask you to evaluate your schedule and to really see whether one night every other week is really too much of a commitment for you. And uh, it's just for your good. I mean, when would you not want to come and hear the Bible taught and be with God's people? It's a perfect time to start. Uh, this time we, uh, we're starting a, a new book, and the Winnebago flock has been in this a, a couple weeks already. But Journey in Purity just speaks about the importance of having a pure church. Uh, continues on really from uh, the last book. And so we're going to use this as a springboard. It's an easy book to read. I'm reading it with two of my kids right now, and they like it. And uh, so that's just my plugs for flocks. If you would uh, like to come, I would encourage you to do that. Tonight at our house is another one. There's some at uh, Friday nights and Sunday nights. You can see your information there in the bulletin. So that's that. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing here in our exposition of Matthew 24. We've been here three weeks, and I think uh, maybe another two weeks in Matthew 24, and then we'll continue on. But to introduce our text this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about one of the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. Are you familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? Maybe some of your kids. And children, if you aren't familiar, why don't you ask your parents to begin reading it to you? Because it's a good book. They're good books to read. There's seven of them. I've read them to Carissa. I remember when we did that a while ago. Just read right through all of them. Had a great time. And I want to talk to you a little bit about a book called The Last Battle. The Last Battle, which deals with uh, really the things toward the end of the world. The opening of the book has a gorilla or an ape named Shift. And he has a donkey friend named Puzzle. And the two of them are talking with one another. And when when you see that, you quickly discern that Shift is a wicked ape and that Puzzle is a gullible donkey. And the ape, with his clever words and crafty speech, basically manipulates this donkey, Puzzle, to the point that Puzzle is actually Shift's slave. Will do anything that Shift tells him to do. And one day, they're beside a river and notice this yellow object floating down the river and they fished it out of the river and they discerned, you know what it was? Kids, you know what it was? What was it, Melissa? It was a lion skin, exactly right. And so Shift looked at it, thought about it, and coerced Puzzle to put it on. He sewed it, changed the the sewing of it a little bit, kind of fit like a little coat over Puzzle, this donkey. And then once it was on, Shift said to Puzzle, 
Why, you look wonderful. Wonderful, I say. If anyone saw you now, they'd think that you were Aslan, the great lion himself. And Puzzle said, well, that would be dreadful. And she just said, no, it wouldn't. Everybody would do whatever you told them. The story goes on. Shift the ape tells everyone around that that Aslan has returned to Narnia and that Aslan has appointed Shift to be the spokesman. And so in order to convince the other animals in Narnia that Aslan had indeed returned, on occasion, Shift would let Puzzle out at, late at night from a distance away from the other animals dressed in this lion skin. They might, might get just a, a glimpse of this four-footed animal that's yellowish and think that Aslan had returned. And it was enough to fool many that Aslan had indeed returned to Narnia. But as the story goes on, you see the orders from Shift the Ape, which were supposedly orders from Aslan himself, were unlike anything that Aslan would have done. Like, for instance, Shift one time was demanding from squirrels that they bring nuts to Aslan because this, the lion wants nuts. What's a, what's a lion going to do with nuts? Obviously, the gorilla wanted the nuts. And, and um, Shift said this. He said, I, mean, I want... I mean, I mean, Aslan wants some more nuts. These you've brought aren't near enough. You must bring me some more, do you hear? Twice as many. And they got to be here by sunset tomorrow. There mustn't be any bad ones or small ones among them. And these squirrels, right, were thinking, you know what, that doesn't sound proper. I mean, it's depleting their storehouses. They worked so long over the summer to amass these storehouses of nuts. And they requested that they might speak with Aslan himself. But Schiff said, he may be very kind and come out for a few minutes tonight and you might just have a look at him, but he will not have you all crowding around him and pestering him with questions. Anything you want to say to him will be passed through me if I think it's worth bothering him about. In the meantime, all you squirrels had better go and see about the nuts and make sure they are here by tomorrow evening or my word, you'll catch it. You can obviously see the trickery and the falsehood in that. And though it didn't seem right to the animals that Aslan would insist upon such things as gathering nuts, they'd convinced themselves that they had seen Aslan. They'd seen him from a distance. And so they blindly followed this talking ape, supposing that he indeed was speaking on behalf of Aslan. Now, this is a perfect illustration of what Jesus said would take place in the latter days. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. Jesus says this, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The title of my message this morning is The Coming of the Son of Man. I just want to pick out three observations about how Jesus will return. First point, the coming of the Son of Man will be public for all to see. When Christ comes back, He's not going to make appearance off in the distance someplace in a shadowy form like Puzzle did. No, when Christ comes back, there will be no doubt of His return. Think about us. When we hold a party, 
we, we, we write up invitations and send them out to let others know that they're invited. Or we call them on the phone. We tell them when the party is and, and where the party will be. But Christ has no need to send out His invitations to His ultimate party. When He comes back, you will know it. He doesn't have the need, like verse 23 says, to say, behold, here's the Christ. Or, there He is, He's over there. Or, or see that figure in the distance, there, that's Christ. And in fact, if somebody tells you these things, like there's Jesus, or He's over here, or don't believe them. Because when Jesus returns, He won't be hiding out in some back room someplace. He won't be making faint appearances. He will be clear and evident to all. There will be no mistaking it. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says that every eye will see Him. And that's the thrust here of verses 27 through 28. Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, you all know what thunderstorms are like, don't you? So maybe Jake, have you experienced a thunderstorm yet in the Midwest? I remember Jake, this is just an aside. Jake one time came up to me and was talking to me and he said, there's going to be thunderstorms tonight, like really excited about the thunderstorms. Because they they're not in California. And uh, not, not, not real thunderstorms. But we know what thunderstorms are like, Right? <coughs> It's been thundering and lightning and, the, and uh, it's late at night. It's dark outside. You can't see a thing. The, the lightning has knocked out the power. So all the street lights are, are pitch dark black. And then all of a sudden, there's this flash of light. And what can you see? You can see everything for a couple of seconds. You know, it's flittering and, and fluttering there. And you can see almost as if it's daytime. And then a few seconds later, you know, comes the thunder. Well, when you think of the return of Christ... You ought to think about lightning, which illumines all around. That's the sense of verse 28. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. <clears throat> There's somehow, some way, birds of prey always find the carcass. In today's language, you might say, wherever the roadkill is, there the crows are sure to gather, right? You drive alongside the road, you see the crows. They find it. And so also Jesus, when He returns, wherever the living are, the Lord will make Himself known. I've seen pictures trying to represent this. And it, it's got a lightning bolt coming from outer space and then coming around the whole globe, forming a, 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 a lighted globe. Just kind of that's what the Son of Man will be like. Just like the lightning that flashes across the sky. When Jesus returns, it won't be a secret. All the world will know. But until that time, as verse 24 says, there will be false Christs and false prophets who will arise and will show forth great signs and wonders. In fact, I believe that the signs and wonders that these people will do will be quite convincing because many will be led, misled. Even it says in verse 4 is that people will be deceived. He will mislead many, verse 5. But when you compare the miracles that Jesus does compared with the miracles that these false teachers do, there's no comparison. I mean, it's a bit like the magicians in the day of Moses. Through their cunning deception, they could turn a staff into a serpent. And they could turn water into blood. And they could produce frogs, much like magicians maybe do today. You know how magicians take a hat and they pull bunnies out of the hat? You know, they could do that with frogs. But with the gnats and insects, 
They couldn't control those. I don't know of any magicians today who go out and do the, the net and insect show. They couldn't do it. They couldn't bring pestilence on livestock, boils or hail, or any of the other miraculous things that the Lord has done. And so when you compare the power of the magicians to the power of Moses and Aaron, who could turn the plagues on and turn them off, exactly as they said it took place to the power of the Lord, there's no comparison. It's no comparison. And so it will be when Jesus returns to earth. And sadly, many will be deceived. People will follow after the magician who works his wonders with sleight of hand. Will follow after the smooth talker who claims to be the Christ. The assurance we have though in verse 11 is that the elect won't be misled. I think that's the thrust of the verse, right? If They will mislead, if possible, even the elect. I believe the implication of these verses is it's not possible to deceive the elect in these things. I mean, it's the elect who's seen and known Christ and know what His return will be like, and they won't accept any imitations. Recently, I was at a a meeting one time, meeting with Larry Pauley from Elam Baptist Church. And I was sitting there in uh, in his office, and we get together once a month, and we... uh, we eat together, we bring sack lunches, eat together, and then we read Spurgeon together and he teaches us and then we, uh, we pray together just for ministry and encouragement. It's really a fun time, it's a nice time. I look forward to it every month. And I brought a bottled water one time and he saw that bottled water and he said, oh, oh, here, here, why don't you try this thing? And he gave me just this little, I don't know, it's a little tube thing. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Is, is it a Serta? Is that what it is? It's a, the new sweetener stuff. And he said, oh, this, is, this has been really good. You know, it's like zero calories. Here, why don't you try it? So you kind of dip a little bit into, you know, just a little tube of sweetener into this, into this water. And I, I shook the water up and I took it and then I, I tasted it. And, oh, <laughs> I've tasted sugar. I've tasted the real thing. And that sweetener just didn't do it for me. And the elect have tasted the real thing with Christ. And the imitations... Just don't do it for them. And they won't be misled. Right? They've experienced His unbelievable kindness. They know of His incredible power. They've given, his hearts, they've given their hearts to Him. And one comes along with small miracles or professing to be Christ like shift was. It doesn't make sense. They don't want any part of the imitation. When they meet one claiming to be a great prophet without the kindness of Christ, they know that it's not quite right. Well, that's the coming of the Son of Man. First, it's going to be public for all to see. Second, verse 29, the the coming of the Son of Man will be powerful. It'll be powerful. It comes here in verse 29. Unbelievable power of God displayed here. It says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Four phrases here in this passage. Look at the first one. It says the sun will be darkened. I don't believe there will be an eclipse. I don't believe the sun will finally run out of energy which will take several billions of years from now is what scientists say should we last that long on earth. I believe that Jesus will quench the sun Like we quench a candle. I remember the ceiling. (laughs) 
I've tested it. This is our sun. Puts off trillions of watts of energy every second. And Jesus will just... Sun goes dark. That's the power of Jesus. Jesus says the moon will not give its light. We know the moon is a reflector. When the source of the reflector is gone, the reflector is dark. So the moon goes dark when the sun goes dark. <coughs> Jesus says that the stars will fall from the sky. Now, I don't know how they'll fall. Maybe they'll be like shooting stars that come down across the horizon. But we know that they'll fail in giving forth their light. I think that Jesus will quench them just as He quenched the sun. These are the stars. This is getting a little more risky here, right? You know, I've only got... Ooh, I'm not sure this is working. Kids, you got to help me on this. Anyway, you get the point. <laughs> These are the stars. Picture maybe a, a birthday cake. 30, 40, 50 year old, years old, 30, 40, 50 candles, and just Jesus will blow out all the stars. But rather than just four, picture trillions and trillions of stars spanning the whole universe, and Jesus, with one breath, blows them all out. I mean, that's unbelievable understatement. It reminds me a little bit about the creation account. Remember, it says, God made the greater light to govern the day. He made the lesser night to govern the stars, to govern the night. He made the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And you remember what it says? And He made the stars also. But the more we find out about the stars, it's not like an afterthought. It is unbelievable, all the stars that Jesus did. And it's similar here. He will quench the light of the sun. He'll quench the light of the moon. And the stars also. Do you see the power of Christ's return? Jesus said, fourthly, that the powers of heaven will be shaken. I mean, you can only imagine what's going to happen on earth that day when, when the lights go out, Son of Man flashes across the sky. I mean, there's just fear and trembling all across the earth. Think about what it does to all of the universe. Think about what it does to the heavenly host. It's understandable that the universe is shaken to its core. Now, many commentators, I feel like I need to comment on this, will take these events as figurative rather than literal. I don't know why that. Maybe that's the difficulty of the stars falling. I'm not exactly sure. They will say, go back to the Old Testament where similar language is given. Because this is. This is Old Testament terminology. But Isaiah 13, verse 10, "...the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light." Joel 2.29, "...for the sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord has come." And as I went back and I read all of these Old Testament passages this week, I was open to understanding this figuratively. I mean, meaning that if that's how the Old Testament used this language, then maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Just talking about, you know, rulers falling. 
And I found that some may have this in mind. Ezekiel 32, verse 7 talks about how Pharaoh would be extinguished. His son would be covered. Haggai chapter 2, verse 21 talks about how the heavens are going to be shaken and thrones and powers will be brought down, kind of in the similar language. And then Zerubbabel would be placed in power. Obviously talking about the rulers and authorities, kind of using the same language. But when you read the others in their context, I think the clearest understanding is to realize he's talking about worldwide disaster coming. The context indicates far more than merely rulers falling. I mean, Isaiah 34 speaks about God coming to pour out His wrath upon the entire world. The Lord's indignation is against the nations and He will utterly destroy them all. It's talking more than just leaders falling. It's talking about destroying everybody and the earth. And the day that Jesus is talking about here, lightning flashing all across the sky, Jesus coming to be seen by all, it's a climactic day. It's a day of demonstrating His power and great glory over all the earth. It's not localized one power. He's talking about returning to the earth as the sovereign King and Lord of all. So I don't believe these are describing simply the falling of rulers from power. I think he's describing the cosmic disturbances that come alongside his return to earth. The sun is darkened and the disappearance of the stars. And I don't think it's too unreasonable to conclude this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that the present heavens and the present earth will be destroyed by fire. The day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The earth will burn up someday. Be destroyed by fire. That's what Jesus said. So is there any reason to you know, assume that the sun can go dark? Absolutely it can. In fact, in Revelation 21, we're told of a new heaven and a new earth that came. The first heaven, it's the sky we see, and the first earth disappear. They're done away with. He destroys them. And then comes the new heaven and the new earth. And I think verse 29 is talking about that day when He's coming back to destroy things. The powers of heavens are shaken. So it does bring up another question I need to ask by way, answer by way of technicality. Verse 29, a difficult word is this word immediately. Jesus says that these things would take place immediately following the tribulation of those days. And for the past several weeks, I've spoken to several of you about my sermons. And uh, I gave you some pretty strong history lessons of how I believe that much of this in Matthew chapter 24 has been fulfilled, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But you know what? Search Josephus all week. I couldn't find anything that gave any indication that verse 29 was filled, fulfilled in AD 70. I couldn't find it. And so this immediately ought to cause some things that realize that prophecy is difficult. And Kent Hughes preached a sermon on Mark 13 at College Church, and he said, We have yet to find a scholar to unravel the naughty problems of the Olivet Discourse. Because it's difficult to know how it is that it works. And a few weeks ago, I gave you a picture of prophecy. You remember this illustration? I said, this is what prophecy is about. Sometimes it seems to be talking about the near things. You know, and sometimes it seems to be talking about the far things, like the blue. And sometimes the blue turns into... White, And then you're talking about the, the far things. And, and then it turns back to blue again. And there's just this interweaving about the fulfillments and when things are fulfilled. And I think that that's what's happening here. Sometimes it speaks about the near future. Sometimes the far future. Sometimes both. And I think the best way to take this passage here is to understand that though much of Matthew 24 was fulfilled, 
in AD 70, there still is this tie-over of an expectation to come in the future of some kind of coming tribulation, period. These things that have been fulfilled in the past will be experienced again in the future. The tribulation is coming, he says, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days. Right? And we even saw in verse 21, talking about some great tribulation that, that occurred. And I told you about the destruction of Jerusalem and the terrible destruction that took place. And that may come again in the future in terms of another terrible dis, uh, tribulation that would cause then this immediately to make sense. That's the best I can do. It's still naughty in my mind. It's still like this. But I don't see any way how we can say that these things have been fulfilled. They're talking about the future coming of Christ. And then verse 30, which leads us to my final point this morning. The coming of the Son of Man will be public and be powerful. And here it is. It will be purposeful. Read in verse 30. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from the one end of the sky to the other. Now these are two of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. They're filled with purpose. When Jesus comes back again, He's going to come back to rule and reign, not in some hidden, veiled way, but out in the open for all to see. When Jesus comes again, He'll destroy those who have rebelled against His reign and He'll gather those who have submitted to His reign. I want to start here in the last half of verse 30. It's a quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in which Daniel refers to a day in which Jesus is given the kingdom forever. Listen to what Daniel wrote. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days, God the Son, with God the Father, and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And when Jesus says here that He will appear again on the clouds with power and great glory, He's saying that He's the sovereign one to whom God the Father will give Him a kingdom which will not pass away, which will be sovereign and over all. Now, there are many today who simply don't believe the words of Jesus. They say, oh yeah, well, yeah, He existed. He was a good teacher. He did lots of good things like Buddha or others. But he's like everybody else. Certainly he's not God. I'm not accountable to him. He certainly won't return again. But there will be a day in which Jesus proves them to be wrong. When Jesus comes back, all the world will know him. It's here in verse 30. It's the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in the sky. It's the sign that will convince them we don't know what this sign is. Some have, have said down through history that it's a big cross in the, in the sky, like clouds are forming this big cross saying, oh, this is Jesus. I think that's pretty fanciful. Others say that this is the big sign that Jesus refused to give the scribes and Pharisees as they said, give us a sign from heaven. He said, I won't give you a sign. A wicked, adulterous generation seeks a sign, but I'll give you this sign. Maybe. 
I don't know what it is, but I do believe that these words refer to a visible and clear presence of Jesus to the whole world. Wherever anybody is in the world, they look to the heavens and they'll know that Jesus has returned. That's what I think. It's a sign of the Son of Man. Nobody's going to be in the dark. All will understand something incredible is happening and they will know that it's Jesus coming back to earth. That's the sign of the Son of Man. And we even get from verse 30 here that it is not a blessed reality for some. Jesus said, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's probably not mourning in repentance. It's in sorrow for sin. It's probably mourning in despair, in dread. Listen to Revelation chapter 6, which I believe is describing the same moment. John says, and I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The day when the sun is darkened and the moon is darkened and the fall stars fall from the sky and things on the earth are shaken up. <coughs> People are mourning and they're seeking shelter. In fact, they would prefer being crushed to death than living. It's because they realize that nobody can stand before the wrath of God. And that's what's taking place here in verse 30. Appearing to all the tribes and them mourning. But the good news is that there are some which will escape the wrath of God. These are called, again, His elect. Verse 31. He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. And He's talking about those who God has chosen from the foundation of the world to be gracious to. That's what He's talking about here, about the elect, using it in verse 22, using it in verse 24, using it in verse 31. Just God's chosen people. He has chosen to open their eyes and they might see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. These are the ones that He's going to protect and keep. And I believe here, verse 31, He's talking about the rapture of the church, the time when the church is caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says. We will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Christ coming down for judgment. He's coming in the clouds. But before the thunder comes of judgment, the lightning comes, takes His saints to be with Him, gathering all the, with the angels, gathering all the saints to be with Him, and then the thunder of His wrath is going to come. So it says, God is not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's taking place here. The language here in verse 31 is consistent with New Testament language concerning the coming of Christ. The angels are the reapers, just as Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41. And a trumpet is blown, just as Paul said in several places, calling his people to himself. 
See, verse 31 is a rescuing verse. The angels, when they gather the elect, don't gather them to destroy them. They gather the elect to preserve them alive. Verse 30 is the condemning verse. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. You see, on that day when the Son of Man comes back again, everyone on the planet will have to deal with Jesus Himself. Some will deal with Him in His glory and power. Others will be gathered to Him by angels and they'll know His love and grace and kindness. It's really the, the reality of life. Is that we all have a meeting scheduled. It's on our day timer. It's on your Palm Pilot. Maybe you don't know when it will be. You don't know where it will be. But you have a scheduled meeting with Jesus Christ to account for your life. And those who the angels have gathered shall always be with the Lord. And those who are left in the earth will be destroyed by His wrath, physically in death and spiritually forever in hell. And so I ask you, where do you want to be on that day? I know where I want to be. I want to be in the clouds with Jesus. I don't want to be on the earth facing His thunderous wrath. But you realize it's how you respond today that determines where you'll be on that day. If Christ has for you become your refuge and you're trusting in the cross of Christ, if you are resting on the firm foundation of Jesus alone for your salvation, then you'll be forgiven by Jesus and you'll be with Him forever. But if you've rejected Christ and your life obviously demonstrates that fact, you'll be left on earth to suffer for a season and then sent to hell to suffer forever. They're glorious words, but they are sober words. So as we think about the return of Christ, I would just say to you all that as a believer in Christ, there's no need to fear the coming of the Son of Man. When He comes, He's got a purpose. He's going to rescue some. He's going to destroy others. I mean, think about this. If the military is on your side, when you see the military coming, is that a blessing or a dread? It's a blessing because you know you're secure because they have guns and tanks and they'll protect you. But if the military is not on your side and you see the same picture of men in fatigues and guns and machine guns, is that a comfort or distress? It's distress. And that's how when Christ comes back, some will be in dread and mourn, and some will rejoice as they will be with Him forever. The believer is the one who loves His appearing. The believer is the one who loves the King. Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. In other words, a characteristic of a Christian is one who loves or longs for the appearing of Jesus. Do you long for and do you love and do you eagerly expect and await for the coming of Christ? That is what the rest of Matthew 24 and 25 are all about. I told Yvonne as I was thinking about Matthew 24 and 25, I'm going to be preaching like the same sermon for five weeks in a row. Christ is coming back. Are you ready? Are you eager? Are you looking for that? That's going to be our, our blood. And I'm praying for us as a church that we would fall in love and long for and desire Christ to come back and 
restore His kingdom and that we might be with Him forever. Are there days in your life that you've looked forward to with eager anticipation? Maybe a birthday or an anniversary or someday you're going to take off from work and spend it with your family away in some special place. Maybe some kind of thing you're going to go to, a musical performance or a sporting event. You just, I can't wait for that day to come. Maybe you're awaiting for the day when a special package comes in the mail, as took place in our house this week. Some packages came in the mail, and uh, Hannah comes rushing into my, actually on the intercom, says, Dad, the package is here, the package is here, the package is here. And she's just running. She's excited because looking forward to that day when the mail would come. Maybe there's a summer vacation that you're thinking about coming, and, and you're just excited about it. In fact, in past years, we've gone to Gitche Bible Camp with several of the families here at the church. And I remember coming home one time after the camp, and it was like that week or a week later, Hannah was so excited about going the next year that she'd already packed her clothes. Longing and loving for his appearing. Well, I remember in college longing for a day to come. My undergraduate work was done at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And one of the long-standing traditions, I'm guessing this has been going for more than 50 years, is a celebration of Flunk Day. It takes place every spring. Any you ever heard of this? Flunk Day before? Well, maybe you've not heard of Flunk Day at Knox College. I mean, the idea is, like, Senior Skip Day. You've heard of Senior Skip Day, right? You just kind of take off the day. But at here, it's the entire college that flunks on that day. On that day, all classes are canceled. All scheduled activities are canceled. It's a party, and it goes on all day long. Those who plan the party bring in various things for entertainment. There are movies throughout the days, lunch and dinner, special nice barbecues, carnival activities. Uh, one year they brought a Ferris wheel to campus, a big tug of war over mud pits, um, giant water fights. In fact, even on the, the children's notes, I got a picture there of a giant pool that they were filling with soap, like a soapy pool. I got people just sliding on these slip and slides. It was just a day of helter-skelter Fun, loud music, partying, dancing, and everything that goes on at a college campus. Not all of it wholesome and good. All day long, you greet your fellow students and say, Happy Flunk Day! Happy Flunk Day! Happy Flunk Day! Can you say it? Happy Flunk Day! And it's just all the time, just Happy Flunk Day! I had class today, I had a big assignment due, but it's Flunk Day. It's not due until tomorrow. This is great. Shut everything down. But catch this, you don't know when Flunk Day is. It's not scheduled. It's planned by only a handful of students. I think about five students we called friars. I don't know where that came, name came from. <coughs> <coughs> but they set the agenda, they plan the party, and nobody else knows, not even the president of the college knows when Flunk Day is, except these five or so people. What's more, you don't even know who these people are. If you knew who these people were, you'd be pulling out steeple under. What does it say about the voice of the martyrs, the persecution? We need to get this out of these people. Figure out when flunk day is. So you don't know who's planning it. You don't know when it is. But it always starts at 4 o'clock in the morning. These friars run around campus at 4 a.m. and they're blowing these basketball whistles. Yelling, flunk day, flunk day, flunk day. The, the bell of Old Main. Bing, 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 bing. Flunk day. Four in the morning, okay? 
Schedules are handed out the day, listing all the activities. Banners are put up. Massive party that begins at four in the morning and ends late at night. Now, I want you to think about what does this do to the students at Knox College during the spring semester when this is going to take place? <coughs> think about it. During the entire spring semester, a legitimate conversation starter is this. So, when do you think Flunkdale will be? When do you think Flunkdale will be? You can talk about anybody with that. And I remember people taking out school calendars, and they were studying them. Okay, well, there's you know a baseball game this day. Can't be that day. There's a track meet here. There's a can't be that day. There's a, a musical performance here. Can't be that day. There's this. Can't be that day. Trying to figure out what days it might be because this group of five people have like target dates for when it might be. And if, if the weather's good, they could call it. Or if it's bad, they'll, they'll just go to the next date. And so they had some target dates like this. It's a bit tricky because sometimes special events were easily canceled. In fact, I remember one time there was a political science professor flown across the country to come and give a lecture at Knox College on Flunk Day. <laughs> Needless to say, the lecture was not given on that day. I remember on several occasions, I remember some students who thought they'd figured out when Flunk Day was. The night before, they start to party. You know, they're around um, playing cards, listening to music, enjoying their alcoholic beverages. And people say, what are you doing? Oh, it's going to be flunk day tomorrow. It's going to be flunk day. Right? Most of the time it happened when they had a big assignment due that wasn't done. They're just hoping and praying that it's going to be flunk day. And several times they found out it wasn't flunk day, and they were disappointed to find out that classes weren't canceled on that day. I don't think they were in condition to attend class anyway. But that's what it did to students. I remember sometimes doing the study and thinking to myself, flunk day's got to be tomorrow. It's got to be tomorrow because I'd look at the schedule <coughs> and kind of I'd fall asleep and think of that in my mind. I'd kind of wake up 3.45, 4 o'clock in the morning and I'd be like, is it it? And I'd be quiet. And I'd wait, you know, maybe 4.15, 4.30, kind of up, thinking that they're going to come any moment and they didn't come. But I was expecting it. I remember several occasions having flunk day scares. Sometimes people would, uh, four in the morning, run around, tree, tree, flunk day, flunk day, flunk day. People would start getting up, but they didn't hear the bell. It's pretty hard to fake the bell, but they couldn't hear the bell. So eventually they found out what was going on, right? There's no organization, this thing. These people are just, eh, it's not flunk day. I remember one year the friars decided that flunk day wouldn't start at 4 a.m., it started at 5 because, you know, all these dates had been uh, rainy and it didn't work. And so it was finally the date and everybody was anticipating it and everyone's kind of getting up at 4. It's got to be this date. It's got to be this date. And it was, nothing happened. But 5 o'clock came around. This flunk day, flunk day, flunk day. It's been taking place for a long time. Well, I tell you that for two reasons, okay? First reason is this, is that on Monday I received an email from... Knox College Alumni Relations, and it said, Happy Flunk Day. Yes, it's Flunk Day 2005. Music is streaming from windows and balconies across campus, and students are outside enjoying the beautiful April morning. We hope you can get away from the daily grind. Go outside, celebrate spring, and enjoy your own special Flunk Day. If not, take a mental break for a few minutes and reminisce about the Flunk Days of past. If you remember on Monday, what was the weather like on Monday? That would have been massive chaos down at Galesburg, Illinois. Great day for Flunk Day. So this past week was Flunk Day. 
I tell you that for a second reason. It is a great illustration of what it's like to eagerly wait for a coming day. I mean, you think about this whole college campus, we had about a thousand students, and, and it was in the minds of many often about this day, which would be flunk day. And our longing for the return of Christ ought to far exceed the longing of a few college students for flunk day, ought it not? Ought it not? When you think about the return of Christ, it should be public and powerful and purposeful. Does it stir your soul? I mean, do you look forward to this day? Do you long for this day? You know, the return of Christ upon the earth is called the the blessed hope. Because it is a time when our hope is realized. Paul says our citizenship isn't here upon the earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we know that those who have trusted in Christ have a better and abiding possession in heaven, not here upon the earth. Paul said there's a glory to be revealed that far exceeds all the difficulties and all the sorrows and all the pains and all the sufferings here on earth. Because when Christ comes back, He takes us home where we want to be. Have you ever reached a point where you wanted Jesus to return today? In recent weeks, I have. I've been going through some difficult things. And I said, boy, I would long for Christ to come back. I could just be in my rest Did you know that one of the characteristics of believers is that they eagerly await for His return? Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 28. It says that Christ shall appear a second time for salvation to those who eagerly await Him. And I think that the implication of that is this. If you're not eagerly awaiting for the return of Christ, you better examine your life. Perhaps there's too much of the world in you Right? Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But when you set your minds on the things above and you love Christ and you wait for His, for his coming, that shows and demonstrates that you are a believer who will be rescued. If you aren't eagerly awaiting His return, maybe this present world has got too much of you. I would have you this morning to evaluate your heart. So I look at these words talking about the sun being darkened and Christ demonstrating His power, shaking the universe, the Son of Man coming, all the tribes of the earth seeing Him, coming to consummate His kingdom, coming on the clouds of great glory, sending forth His trumpet with His angels, right, gathering His elect. Is that a day that you just say, I can't wait until that day? That's the day we all must long for. And this morning, we have a, a great opportunity to even proclaim and trust and, and uh, put forth our trust in that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper just here in a few moments. And it's in the Lord's Supper, the Bible tells us, to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper does that. We proclaim His death that we're boasting and trusting in Christ until the day when He comes again. There'll be a day when we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper anymore. And that day will be the day when we're in heaven with Him. We no need to taste and, and see of the elements of Christ. We will be there and we will see Him and we'll be with Him all the time. No sense for symbols. We'll see the reality. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a declaration that we've trusted in Christ in the past. Oh Christ, I'm believing You. I'm trusting You. I, help me. And that we're longing for His return 
in the future. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And so I ask you, according to 1 Corinthians 11, that before we take the Lord's Supper every time, we ought to examine our hearts. You ought to examine your hearts to see whether you are in the faith. If you're not in the faith, if you're not trusting Christ, don't take of the elements. Because this is for those who have trusted in Christ. And you need to do so also, as it says, in a worthy manner. The problem in the Corinthian church was that they were unloving towards one another. They were holding on, harboring their sin against one another. And he says, if, if that's your case, don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's a mockery. You will eat and drink guilt upon yourself, judgment upon yourself, if you don't judge the body rightly. So I'd have you this morning even to bow your heads, to think about the return of Christ to think about whether it stirs your heart, whether you long for that day, or whether the things of this world are consuming you too much. I just want to read again verses 29 to 31. I want you to picture it in your mind. This is what will take place when Christ comes back. Matthew chapter 24. 29 to 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from the one end of the sky to the other. Do you long for that day? Oh God, I would pray as a congregation that we might long for that day. As we think of everything that Christ Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Taking away our sin taking away our shame. He was the one, O oh Lord, to, to remove our transgressions from us. So the Bible says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Lord, we are blessed because of His forgiveness of us. All accomplished in the cross of Christ. And as He was crucified on the cross, as He was raised, His resurrection demonstrated, even as Paul said in Athens, That's by His resurrection, He has furnished proof to all men that He will come and judge the world. His resurrection is a proof, Lord, that He will come again. He'll come for those of us who have embraced Him. To be with Him forever. Oh, may our hearts not be troubled in these things. And He's come to destroy those whose hearts are against Him. He will shatter them, as Psalm 2 says, like earthenware. And so, Lord, I would pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper once again this morning. May we do so in a fresh way, not in a ritualistic way. Looking again, reflecting upon Christ and all He's done for us on the cross. May it be a time of rejoicing. May it be indeed a time of celebrating when we can, in some measure, taste and drink of Christ. Stir it in our hearts, Lord. Commune with us even at this time.